Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. The issues of crime and policing have dominated the race for Chicago mayor this year. Voter surveys highlight crime as the number one concern in the public, and the candidates have outlined in great detail their plans to bring down the crime rate and improve policing in the city. But what really works? It's not as simple a question as it sounds, but this weekend we're going to explore it. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. With funding from the Joyce Foundation, a group of present and former law enforcement officials called 21st Century Policing Solutions conducted a study of the challenges for public safety and the possible solutions. A report from that group said there's been a collapse of the public trust in law enforcement in many communities amid rising crime and a decreasing number of law enforcement officers in the neighborhoods. In this half hour, we're going to talk about ways to meet those challenges. It's an unusual edition of this program because it started out as simply a news story on the report. But the conversation with two of the people connected to this report was interesting and longer than we'd planned. There was no list of questions, just conversation. I was talking with former Seattle Police Chief Kathleen O'Toole, one of the authors of the study, and Robert Boyk, the Chicago Police Department's former Director of Constitutional Policing. Ms. O'Toole led the Seattle police for about four years. Before that, she was Boston's first female police commissioner. She's also worked on police reform in Ireland. Robert Boyk is an independent consultant on policing, but he was Chicago's executive director of the Office of Constitutional Policing. He was abruptly and without comment let go from the department. This is less formal than most of our conversations on Ad Issue. We began talking about the finding that said employing community policing would go a long way towards crime reduction. If you ask police officials in every, uh, you know, any jurisdiction, every time they send police into a neighborhood, somebody labels it community policing. And so what is uh, community policing What's true community policing and, and why isn't it everywhere we need it? So let me start with you, Chief O'Toole. And please, Craig, I'm Kathy. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I appreciate you. that. Um, I think that's a, that's a fantastic question. And one that hasn't been answered well in this country. It seems like the term community policing is used very liberally, but seldom defined. And in some communities, it's an assignment or a unit. 
when in fact it should be the foundation on which everything is built. Um, the, the community should be at the heart of, of policing. And I think I've worked in some jurisdictions where we've been able to accomplish that. Uh, but you know, right now it's particularly important because we have this crisis in policing, this crisis of community confidence. Uh, so we really need to, to define it more clearly for our communities. And every police officer that's out there in the field should be committed to community policing, to providing that service uh, to the community to keep neighborhoods safe. And uh, so it shouldn't be just a unit or it shouldn't be just an assignment. It should be the ethos of the, the police service. And, and Bob Boyk, let me ask you, because you were essentially responsible for uh, you know, shepherding community policing in Chicago. Um, what is that? What's the challenge of doing the job the way it needs to be done? Well, I think there are several challenges, but I think one of the things that the report clearly lays out is that police derive their legitimacy and authority from the community itself. And I think the report really should be viewed as a roadmap for not only building community trust, but for officers gaining legitimacy within the community. And it's really that recipe um, that really leads to uh, substantial improvements in policing, um, as well as uh, increase in public trust, which has residual benefits um, that are fairly dynamic. One of the issues talked about pretty frequently in Chicago is the low clearance rate. And it's really that building of community trust that is at the essence of increasing the clearance rate as well as those individualized relationships within community between officers and community residents. And I mean, we, we talk about the public trust uh, a lot. We talk about it a lot in Chicago, but I mean, it's, it's talked about you know, a lot everywhere. Is there one secret to having that kind of trust, to forging it, especially if it is in an area where it's been lost? I think definitely that authentic uh, engagement with the community is absolutely essential. And it has to start with police leadership. Police leadership has to set the tone. Um, the, the police chief has to be a dynamic change agent who engages with the community um, constantly. I, I remember when I was in Seattle, I seldom sat behind my desk. I was out every day and every night engaging with cops on the front lines and also with people living and working in our community. It's absolutely essential that the chief sets the tone for the organization and, and has, uh, is able to select a command team that buys into that same culture, you know, that makes that same commitment. And then encourage officers uh, and provide opportunities for officers to engage with the community as well. In Seattle, we decided to uh, develop a community policing strategy. When I arrived there, people said, oh, well, you've been in Boston, you've worked overseas, you know, what's your community policing philosophy? I said, look, I said, it's going to be grassroots. I'm not going to dictate it. We're going to build it from the bottom up. And we had uh, 
we had uh, Seattle police officers out in the community working beats in neighborhoods. We divided the city into distinct neighborhoods and we had the officers uh, work with community leaders to develop their list of priorities. We, we focused on the top three to five things that people in that neighborhood wanted the police to address. Now, of course, we are always going to show up for 911 calls and emergency situations, but there are usually issues that police officers on the beat and people working and living in that, that community are facing that maybe police leadership's on, at the central level is unaware of. So we asked them to help us develop a unique plan for, for each neighborhood. And then we brought in Seattle University uh, as a great academic partner to validate the, uh, the program and to develop metrics and surveys, independent surveys, so we could monitor uh, community confidence and all of that. It was, it was incredibly successful. And we, over just a matter of a few years, we sh so showed a, excuse me, over a matter of just a few years, we showed a significant decrease in crime, increase in public trust, um, and, and police officers out there on the front lines, you know, I think felt much better about the job they were doing. Uh, they had clear understanding that there was an expectation that they engaged with the community. It wasn't just up to leadership, but leadership really had to set the tone for that. Well, let me shift it a little bit because in order to get that kind of interaction, and it's not just going out and playing basketball with, you know, with the uh, teenagers in the neighborhood, it seems as if you have to have real buy-in from the officers on the street, um, whether it's a special unit model or whether it's, you know, the everyday model. And that ties in with police morale. Um, Bob Boyk, how do you get the, the, the ground troops, so to speak, to see that as their mission and also to do it well? Yeah, great question. And morale is a huge part of, of effective policing. Um, I think one of the things that the report really highlights is this need to shift as many resources as possible, as close to the community as possible. That doesn't mean every specialized unit is disbanded, although uh, that's probably a great place to start in terms of looking at where to shift resources closest to the community. Um, but that's a, a really critical element in terms of being able to have uh, geographic familiarity, consistency in supervision, um, and being able to develop relationships as close to the community as possible. And, and that consistency is really key, not just for the community, but for the officers themselves. The other thing that is really important is uh, legitimacy in uh, practices around promotion. And um, officers have to view that process as legitimate. When that process is legitimate, it builds trust in the organization and gets away from some of the, um, you know, union versus department mentality. So that's a real important piece as well. Transparency in the process, fairness in the process, um, and uh, the right people becoming supervisors uh, within the ranks of the police department. And uh, uh, Kathy, how difficult is it to balance the need? Because part of your report uh, talks about the need for police forces to reflect 
the communities that they are policing. Um, how much of a challenge is it to you do that and still maintain the confidence of the officers that promotions, that assignments and things like that are also gonna be you know, consistent or fair or whatever it is that they may worry that it might not be? Well, first of all, in order to have a police service that is considered legitimate by the community, it should reflect the community it serves. Um, I don't, wherever I've been in the world, I've worked on the peace process in Northern Ireland. I've worked in Boston, Seattle, wherever I've worked, it's, I've recognized it's been so important to have the, the police service reflect the community. Uh, and I think that recruitment is a huge challenge, particularly right now. We've seen a significant decline in the number of officers in many jurisdictions, many retirements, many resignations, uh, I think a lot of police officers are very discouraged by the, the current environment. So it, it's a challenge. I think we do a horrible job in policing of telling our story. I think we need to uh, tell a much better story about policing and the service it is. It's, it's like an incredible vocation. Um, and I think that people watch television and think it's all about the gunfights and the car chases and uh, law enforcement, when certainly law enforcement is an important component of policing, but the vast majority of policing is providing service to people in need. Now, you have the opportunity to save lives and deliver babies. And, you know, of course, you know, there, there'll be some exciting, you know, dynamic activity from time to time, but it's, it's, a, it's a service. And I think if we communicated that message more effectively, we'd get get a much broader candidate pool. So I think that's a challenge for us. I, I've really been um, supportive of programs that bring young people into policing to get a glimpse of it. In Boston, we have the police cadet program. So we're able to bring young people in to, to paid positions in the police department. They're able to work for three or four years, get a sense for it, see if it's something they want to consider um, as a career, and then they become full-fledged police officers. And uh, I also was the national chair of the police exploring uh, program. And in Seattle, we had a phenomenal exploring program. Again, young people from the ages of 14 to 21, in that instance, uh, came in to the to the uh, police department, they were often a bridge between our organization and the community. Uh, I would say the majority of young people in the exploring program in Seattle were from underserved communities and uh, with great diversity in the program. And they had the opportunity to see it firsthand and see what policing really entailed. And uh, the vast majority of them went on to pursue careers in policing, either in sworn or non-sworn capacities. So I think that recruiting piece is a huge piece of it. You know, the, the, the recruiting um, effort is a huge piece of this, and we really need to get recruitment right. And I've seen that happen in other jurisdictions. Um, I've seen jurisdictions uh, effectively recruit and diversify their police services, and in turn, that helps build community trust. You're listening to News Radio 780's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. We're talking about community policing with former Seattle Police Chief Kathleen O'Toole, one of the authors of a new study on policing, and Bob Boyk, former director of community policing for the city of Chicago. He shepherded the city towards compliance with the federal consent decree. And our conversation continued. I know 
that the intention in Chicago, and I would think cities like Chicago, has been to do more recruiting. We've got a city council that's majority minority. Uh, all of all of the aldermen want more police in their communities and want more police like their communities. Why hasn't it worked as well in a city like this? And I, like I said, again, I think this isn't a story that's just a Chicago story. Um, they're having recruiting problems in New York and, and you know, uh, Philadelphia and, and any other number of places. Why isn't it getting more people and why are we still having police classes that are still, you know, if not, I think one, somebody said the last class, uh, however many hundred there were, there were like 15 non-whites in the class. What's going on? I think that's a really important question. And uh, like you said, jurisdictions all around the country are struggling with recruitment right now. Um, and, you know, Chicago is no exception to that. Um, but I think, uh, I think what uh, Chief O'Toole really touched on and what the report focuses on um, is the need to be creative about how you get those resources from within your own community. Um, and to think a little bit outside the box. Uh, and, you know, one of the pieces referenced in the report is thinking a little bit differently about who owns pieces of that process, uh, whether the city should own that process or whether uh, an outside entity should own that process. And I think that's a really important question um, that, uh, that the report touches on, uh, that other jurisdictions are thinking about, and that uh, Chicago should think about as well. Um, but there's no question that the goal really needs to be having a, a police department that reflects the communities uh, that they serve. Let me, you just reminded me of something that I really should raise with the two of you, even though it, I don't think it's covered to a great extent in the report. And that is Chicago's about to enter into a whole new world of civilian oversight. And and, and I talked to a couple of the people involved in it. They are literally building the plane while they're flying it because they're already in the process of, of trying to uh, help select a new police superintendent. And they also had to go over the police budget. But is that an answer to the issue of legitimacy? Um, and can, how do you mold that or fold it better is a better word into an existing police structure. And let me ask you first, Kathy. Uh, well, accountability is absolutely vital and it, but it must be clearly defined. And I think in too many jurisdictions, they've been building the plane while flying. So, um, but I think there are three functions of external accountability that should be clear and separate. You know, first, a, a body for oversight of the performance of the chief and the department. Uh, then there should be a separate one for the investigation of complaints. And then one for inspections for um, almost like a inspector general. In many jurisdictions, they'll have a citywide inspector general, but there should be a specific office um, independent for independent inspections of the police as well. Um, I think that complaints should definitely be investigated by independent bodies and, and staffed with first-rate investigators. Uh, so, I, and I think that if the 
accountability structures are legitimate and clear and separate, that the police themselves will have more confidence in the system. Nobody despises bad cops more than good cops. I can recall firing police officers for outrageous behavior from time to time. And inevitably, I received calls and text messages from good officers saying, way to go, chief. That should have happened a long time ago. So I, I think that police officers, good police officers are not going to have an issue with fair accountability systems, but they need to be clearly defined so that the police officers and the community understand the responsibilities of these different uh, accountability entities and that there's not overlap or competition between them. Hmm. Um, uh, boy, in, in some ways, it sounds like Chicago is heading toward a structure like that. The, uh, the overall accountability for the, for the department is probably going to fall uh, to the new uh, community commission that has just been created. COPA, which is our investigative arm, has been operating and, and, and doing better than it did in its uh, earlier incarnations. And I guess, well, there is a separate, I, there, isn't, there isn't a separate inspector general, but there is within the inspector general's office, a separate <laughs> inspector general just for public safety. Um, so, Bob, is, does it seem as if Chicago is heading in that direction? And I mean, I, I, I have to acknowledge that I'm saying that to somebody who uh, was in, you know, in there while it was starting to change and then pushed out. Um, I think Chicago definitely has some of the necessary elements. Um, I don't want to get too far down in the weeds of Chicago because that's not necessarily what this report is about. Um, and I, I do think that uh, Chicago, as well as every other jurisdiction, needs to wrestle with questions of transparency, uh, of fairness, of professionalism, um, and how to ensure that whatever your accountability structure is, is interconnected and that the pieces of the pie are put together thoughtfully uh, in a way that creates legitimacy into the process. And I think that's really what's most important. I think it's an ongoing struggle here in Chicago, and I think it's going to continue to be an ongoing struggle. Uh, and we're not unique in that regard. I think uh, a lot of jurisdictions have this struggle as well. Um, but really that, that sense of fairness and transparency, both on the part of the community, as well as on the part of the officer, uh, that legitimacy is important. And then the last thing I'm going to ask both of you uh, is just if there's something that you hope will be a, a takeaway from this uh, report for uh, cities, uh, mainly, I mean, my interest is cities, but uh, for police de departments all over the country. Uh, Kathy? Well, if you don't mind, Craig, I would just like to add something to that oh, last discussion. Absolutely. And that is, you know, we cite, we actually cite a Pew Research Center uh, report that was prepared in 2017 that indicated that 72% of police at that point did not believe that underperforming officers were held accountable. So 
uh, as I said before, the good police officers are not intimidated by, by fair uh, and well-structured accountability systems. So I, I think that it, it's just a matter of getting those accountability systems right um, so that officers know that they're being judged fairly. And, and I think that early intervention and officer wellness programs and things of that nature are really important too, um, so that we actually prevent and intervene uh, before bad behavior occurs. Mm. Um, so that, I just wanted to, to no, add that. Please. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so I, I think that um, one, one thing I'd like to say is I've worked a lot on consent decrees across the country. Um, I was a, I've been a, a consultant to the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. I worked on one of the early consent decree cases, the New Jersey State Police case. I was a monitor in East Haven, Connecticut of a consent decree. I'm currently the monitor of a consent decree in Springfield, Massachusetts. When I worked out in Seattle, I was the chief in a department that was under a consent decree. So I've seen these from every perspective. And I truly believe that a consent decree is not something to be intimidated by. It's something that can be a wonderful tool, a wonderful foundation for reform. And if a department doesn't have a consent decree as a roadmap, then the police chief should do an assessment of the organization and develop a similar roadmap but, uh, you know, again, I think a lot of people in communities and a lot of people in police organizations are intimidated by uh, investigations and, and that lead to consent decrees. And then sometimes these consent decrees can be very, um, they, they can be large documents with lots of requirements, but I've seen wonderful things actually emerge from them because the jurisdiction has to invest, if the jurisdiction commits to the plan under a consent decree, then that jurisdiction has to invest in the reforms that were that are required that have been identified. And it shouldn't be a box ticking exercise. You know, shouldn't have to go down a list and check boxes <clears throat> as to what requirements uh, have been fulfilled in the consent decree. It should be the foundation for reform. And the goal is to create a culture of continuing improvement and innovation. So you don't want to tick the boxes and say, okay, we're done now. Um, it's over. The consent decree's been completed. We've lived up to all expectations. You want to create that, con that culture of continuous improvement uh, so that the leadership team and the organization will always be at the leading edge uh, of reform. So, so again, I just like to say that I'm, uh, a staunch advocate for either consent decrees or strategic plans uh, that will assist police chiefs and jurisdictions and communities in moving their police organization forward. Okay, thank you for that. And then Bob, yeah, I I would just uh, add to that that. Um, it is a, and I want to go back to really the first point in the report around leadership. Um, it is really a belief in reform and leading with reform and having uh, reform-oriented principles such as building community trust, such as officers getting out of their vehicles and developing those relationships on a consistent basis uh, in the communities that they serve that really drives consent decree compliance. Consent decrees are very important tools 
But if all you're doing is trying to check the boxes on the consent decree, you're never going to get where you want to go. You really have to lead from the front and you really have to lead with that belief in reform and develop strategies that are aligned to it. It really needs to be uh, your sort of um, centerpiece of what it is you're trying to accomplish. Uh, and that really uh, pays dividends. I think uh, that's what Kathy has seen all over the country. And that's what um, we're hoping to accomplish here in Chicago. But I think this report ultimately is a roadmap for any jurisdiction who might be uh, looking for answers on this journey. Um, and I think it's a really good starting place. Uh, Craig, I, you asked another question, and I, I don't think I answered it properly earlier, but you know, I think that um, it's reform can't be dictated from above. It, in order to realize true reform and innovation in an organization, people have to buy in. And I think it's a matter of getting out, whether you're engaging with rank and file officers, engaging with the community, leadership has to be authentic in that process and get out there and not dictate the agenda, but listen carefully. I'd like to thank former police chief Kathleen O'Toole and former constitutional policing director Bob Boyk for spending the time with us. To our listeners, if you want a copy of this program or to hear it again, please visit our website at wbbmnewsradio.com. You can also find our podcast on odyssey.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of that issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, 105.9 WBBM. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.